Hello, welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. Last week's by-elections, they saw a Tory vote uh, collapse, suggesting that Sir Keir Starmer is heading for Downing Street. Or does it? Well, joining me to consider this are uh, two students of sophology. Uh, James Giles, it's his first time on Resistance TV, who's an independent uh, councillor from uh, Kingston-upon-Thames, and Phil Bevan, who has been a regular on Resistance TV. He's, as people will know, our regular viewers, an independent researcher and writer. And in a previous life, he was an aide to Jeremy Corbyn when he was a leader of the Labour Party. So let me uh, uh, welcome you both and uh, perhaps start with you, Phil, if I can. A lot of the speculation is that Keir Starmer is heading for number 10. He's on a very clear trajectory now, it seems, uh, according to many of the pundits anyway. What's your thoughts? I mean, I looked at the results and uh, I, I think that actually, for example, in Selby um, and Ainsty, the guy who won got, if I'm not mistaken, a smaller vote than uh, was achieved by the Labour candidate uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader. But perhaps you could uh, explain that and indeed talk about some of the other by-elections and what your thoughts are in regards to what that means for the if anything, for the subsequent general election when it comes. Okay, um, thank you, Chris. Always, always good to be on. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've been on before speaking about this subject matter, um, and I think that the, the important thing for me to reassert today is that my my perception of where it's going hasn't changed at all. Um, previously, I've uh, I've said that um, the Labour Party is is underperforming um, with regards to actual election results um, just to put the context in place the Labour Party themselves say that they need um, a swing of around 10 points to be 14 points ahead of the Conservatives at the next election to gain a majority of one uh, um, so they need a Blair era style swing to get the smallest possible majority so in that respect, we're looking for a Blair-style swing, actually a bigger than Blair-style swing, if Keir Starmer is going to be confident um, of getting to Downing Street. Now, to my mind, that would mean um, he would have, he should have won at least um, two of these by-election results. Uh, now, the... Um, the uh, the the name of the constituents escapes. Was it Selby and Anstey? Oxbridge. Oh, Selby and Anstey. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, that one to me, as with um, the um, Summerton and Throne one, uh, looks like a traditional protest vote, uh, in the sense that people flocked to the parties that they thought were most likely to kick the Tories out and send a message to the government. Um, and also for the uh, the Selby one. You had a, as you said, you had a lower low turnout as well. So it suggests that people weren't particularly motivated. But the interesting thing for me is the Uxbridge one, um, because if Labour were really riding high, um, you would expect them to be able to take that seat fairly comfortably. Um, mm. in, in effect, they, uh, I think it was something like five point nine percent they the upswing on last time i think they got which is interesting because that corresponds to a very similar figure that they were getting in local election results early this year so i suspect that 
where Labour actually is in, in reality is probably something like five to seven points ahead of the Tories in the polls, which might deliver um, a uh, sort of a Labour as the largest party in Parliament an election. But you're not looking at majority. And then even mm -hmm. then, you know, it wouldn't take much to uh, undermine their position as it currently is if something goes wrong. And Keir Starmer, he just isn't very likable, to be honest with you. So, um, I don't think the polls are correct. I think these recent um, by-elections basically reinforced the, my existing view, which is that Labour the Labour Party is underperforming on where it needs to be. Mm. What's your thoughts then, James? Because, I mean, this seat in, in Uxbridge that, that Phil said that if Labour was riding high, should be won easily. I think even in the Blair swing, and maybe slightly different boundaries, I don't think Labour even took it then. I think, in fact, there might have been a by-election shortly after the 97 election, and I seem to recall, I might be wrong on this, but I seem to recall Tony Blair going and, and campaigning in the constituency, and it was still held uh, in the in the by-election shortly after the 97 general election as well. <clears throat> I mean, is your thoughts that, uh, similar to uh, Phil's, that uh, the, the polls, the opinion polls don't necessarily tell a, a true picture, and that these results, contrary to what many of the pundits are saying. Indeed, I was talking to a, to a, to a, a guy who's a supporter, actually, and, you know, he's he absolutely, he's, he's pretty depressed about it, I've got to say, but he's, he's sort of of a view that, uh, that Sir Keir Starmer, it's a shoe-in, and that Labour's going to walk it. I mean, what, what's your thoughts, Jane? Well, look, Oaksbridge has always had a habit of doing something a little bit out of the ordinary. I mean, you're right. Uh, successive by-elections, Labour haven't been able to win the seat. The last time Labour held it was in 1966. Uh, and of course, in Uxbridge, there was the rather um, sh rather unique local campaign issue, which was the ultra-low emission zone, or the US, yes. um, which is being promoted by uh, Sadiq Khan. And the Conservatives really did capitalise on that. But I think that should send uh, a, a real uh, spark of danger to, to the Labour Party, which is, you know, Sadiq Khan is for all intents and purposes, perhaps with uh, the exception of Andy Burnham, the most powerful uh, elected uh, Labour politician in the country at present, um, holding the office of Mayor of London. And actually, uh, that's only one part of London. But when that part of outer London uh, looked at Khan's policies and the Conservatives were very successful in turning it into a, a referendum, if you like, on the ULEs, uh, people didn't like what they saw. Uh, and in the days following the by-election, you saw Keir Starmer, in effect, throwing Sadiq Khan uh, under a political bus uh, regarding ULEZ. Now, now, Sadiq has promised he will uh, continue pressing on with the implementation of that. But it really is uh, troubling, I think, or it should be troubling for the uh, Labour Party. I mean, there was a London opinion poll that came out uh, not too long ago from Redfield and Wilton that suggested that for the London mayoral election, uh, support for Sadiq Khan was only at 43%, which for uh, a city where Labour should be easily polling uh, above 60%, uh, you know, if I were Keir Starmer, that would be really quite troubling me. Now, you're quite right, they did a, they, uh, sorry, they were able to overturn the majority in uh, Selby and Ainstein. Uh, I'm not convinced, however, that was with a swing uh, away from the Conservatives to Labour in the conventional sense of people switching their votes. I think you made 
a very good point at the start that the actual number of votes for the Labour candidate was smaller uh, than in previous general elections. Now, obviously, one shouldn't compare uh, the number of votes in a by-election. Turnouts are typically lower. But it would actually suggest to me that rather than uh, Conservative voters switching to the Labour Party, Conservative voters instead are merely choosing to stay at home, which, if Rishi Sunak is able to re-energise his party, I think could be a real headache for the Labour Party heading into the general election. What do you think then that Rishi Sunak could do to re-energise the Tory party then, James? Because there's only probably a year, isn't there, before an election. you think people would be potentially persuaded to... I know there's not much difference between Labour and Tory, but I think in the, in the minds I have a lot of people out there, people who don't necessarily pay as much attention as perhaps people like us do, still see Labour as, a, as an alternative to the Tory party, even though they're absolutely committed to the same economic agenda as the, as the Tories are, the same on a foreign policy, the same social policies. Um, I mean, you know, what, 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 do you, what do you think? I mean, what, what, what can he do, if anything, do you think, realistically? Well, it's a real challenge, isn't it, um, for Rishi Sunak at the moment? I mean, there's been some semi-outlandish things, I think, in the uh, mainstream press around things like abolishing uh, inheritance tax, for instance, which would, you know, drive only a, a further hole into the budget mess that... Um, the Tory government's created over the years. But, you know, if it's last chance saloon for Rishi Sunak, if it's a case of, well, we're probably going to be out of government anyway, uh, you know, if I were him, why not roll the dice and try and get some of your older Tory voters back out and voting for you? Uh, and I personally would probably combine that with immediately repealing voter ID, which actually I think has rather spectacularly backfired on the Conservative Party. Uh, I was in a by-election in Newham just a week before these parliamentary by-elections on polling day. And it was typically older voters, uh, in my experience, that were being turned away for not having ID. And that's something that's been echoed by uh, returning officers from around the country that actually, um, you know, it's disproportionately older people um, who are turning up without ID and then perhaps not returning. I think the other point I just wanted to, to mention, sort of the forgotten uh, element in all this was Somerton and Froome. Mm. Um, well, obviously, the Liberal Democrats uh, overturned a huge Conservative majority, but that really did present, I think, quite a drubbing for the Labour Party, um, which again, I think, should be concerning people. Now, I, I think you're quite right that, you know, the three of us and the good people watching this uh, this evening uh, all pay quite a close eye to politics, but even for those who don't, an independent candidate who was an independent socialist candidate uh, by the name of Rosie Mitchell came within 1% of beating the Labour Party in Somerton and Froome, which I think uh, for a party that supposedly is on the verge of uh, having the keys to Downing Street uh, is really quite something. Did, did, it, did the party lose its deposit there, do you know, James, in, in Somerton and Froome? It lost its deposit by some margin. Uh, the Labour Party only achieved 2.6% of the vote, um, which fell behind uh, the winning Liberal Democrats, behind the Conservatives, but also behind uh, the Greens and, indeed, uh, Reform UK. Yeah, 
And just just before I come back to Phil, I mean, is that a good? Let's just do that comparison uh, that that Phil was talking about, uh, James, in his opening remarks. I mean, you know, in the nineties, ahead of the ninety-seven election, as you were saying, in a Labour doing well in by-elections and in certainly in local elections. Do you know if there were any parliamentary by-elections in that running period? Where Labour performed as badly as they did in Somerton and Froome in a in a, in a parliamentary body. For example, were there any parliamentary by-elections under Blair's leadership where Labour lost its deposit? Well, there were certainly by-elections when uh, Labour did poorly, and the Liberal Democrats uh, used to have a rather uncanny ability to win any by-election from a standing start anywhere. That was before their uh, doomed coalition days. Uh, but I certainly can't think of a by-election where Labour performed quite so poorly. Um, I think the only other by-election that would come to mind would be the Richmond Park by-election in 2016, which was really, uh, to many, a referendum on Zach Goldsmith, um, mm. who at the time, following his uh, uh, disastrous London mayoral bid prior in the year, um, was seen as quite a toxic figure. And there was an element, I think, of... Uh, tactical voting. But what makes me hesitant to describe Somerton in the same way is the fact that rather stunningly, uh, the Green Party emerged in third place, but with over 10% of the vote, um, four times as many votes for the Green candidate as there were for the Labour candidate, mm. um, which would suggest to me that there's, uh, frankly, something wrong um, with uh, left-leaning voters for the Labour Party, and who who would uh, who would uh, be surprised given the way in which the party is headed under uh, Sir Keir Starmer? So, I mean, I guess on that point, then uh, some of the uh, you know smaller left-of-centre parties uh, could have a, a significant disruptive impact in a general election, then, in certainly in some marginal seats where. I'm not saying they necessarily win, but they might take sufficient votes away from the Labour Party to prevent them from actually, you know, securing the seats. Is that, do you think that's likely? Yeah, I think okay. that could happen in a number of places. Um, you know, if people target carefully and put effort into uh, certain seats, and, and that also requires, dare I say, and I know it's uh, often a contentious subject, I think an element of uh, cooperation and unity. Um, mm. You know, Rosie Mitchell yeah. uh, stood on the ballot paper purely as an independent. So if you didn't follow politics quite as closely um, as we do here, then uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that she was any number of political views. Mm. Whereas the Green Party uh, have, uh, for better or worse, quite a clear uh, national brand um, yeah. and play on that. And, you know, if there was uh, an emerging... Uh, genuine left alternative uh, that had a clear message that people could rally behind, then I really think they could make an impact. And, and just one final uh, rather geeky point, if, if I may, I think where a lot of uh, left-leaning parties have struggled in the past at general elections, certainly the uh, people uh, sort of to, the, to the left of Labour, if you like, is not standing enough candidates to qualify for uh, major party status by the BBC. Yeah. Uh, if you stand, it's somewhere in the region of 100 to 150 candidates under your party banner, you'll get an election broadcast and you'll mm. get some coverage 
um, from the BBC. I can't guarantee it'll be good coverage, but it'll be coverage nonetheless, which undoubtedly will increase your vote share. But if people fracture off into uh, any number of, uh, you know, smaller outfits that fall below the threshold, then, um, you know, no coverage, which, you know, ultimately means uh, less share of voice. Well, that was, of course, one of the reasons why the Trade Union and Socialist Coalition was established to uh, try to bring people together to ensure that they meet that that 100 seat threshold to secure that, that coverage that you're you're talking about, James. Now, you know whether or not uh, you know Tusk can be the body that that holds the ring to try to you know bring the disparate political parties, some of which have been around a long time, others are you know just emerging. Um, because unity is absolutely the key, James. You're absolutely right. If you know, if the left outside the Labour, well, the Labour Party's not left. Let's be clear. You know, left-wing parties, uh, progressive parties, uh, if they're going to have any chance of of getting any traction of breaking through, uh, which is a big, tall order. But you know, if they are going to do it, they absolutely have to unite. We we have to put into practice that old Labour movement maxim that unity is strength, but the, the Labour movement is often very, very poor at actually delivering delivering in reality. But just Phil. Um, just going back then to you know the poor turnout and uh, you know what that might mean. Uh, I mean, I think back now, now old enough to remember all these elections. My first election was in 1974, actually, before you two, well before you two were born. But uh, going back only as far as 2001, uh, that you may have some uh, knowledge about or, or, or remember. Uh, I'm sure you'll have knowledge about it, but you, you may you may remember. I'm not quite sure how old you both are. I think, James, you probably won't remember it. But uh, in that election, the turnout, I think, fell below 60%. And again, the, the Labour Party benefited from that because the um, the Tory vote, you know, stayed at home. I remember the new Labour spin doctors talking about what that meant was it represented the politics of contentment, that people didn't feel the need, they didn't need to bother to vote because they were so contented with the way things were. Um, and that's why they won on such a small turnout. Do you think uh, that could happen again and that might let Labour in? Because just, I mean, like we've seen in this election here that the Tories stayed at home, do you think that is a possible, notwithstanding your, what you previously said, but I mean, does that give you any pause for um, thought in relation to, you know, what might happen? No, not really, um, to be honest with you, because... Um, at the time, the Labour Party was the incumbent. So the and I don't think it was um, contentment. I think it was apathy. When you've got two parties that are basically okay. saying the same thing, um, people just can't be asked. And I think if they can't, they're not that interested in voting for the alternative and they're not that interested in changing things. So I th and in that respect, that apathy, um, the apathy non-vote, staying at home, is likely to actually negatively impact upon Labour, especially as historic trends do, in general, tend to point towards um, Tory voters being more likely to actually turn out and vote than Labour voters. You know, they talk about these um, quiet Tories or whatever. And so I, th I think my own view is that actually it will go the other way and that people who might have been inclined to vote for change. You know, some of the people that Jeremy Corbyn's leadership brought out for the Labour Party, and particularly in 2017, won't turn out for Keir Starmer. And so actually, while at the same time, you've got, as James has been pointing out, this sort of um, sclerosis and the, the, this kind of 
slow fracturing of labor support to the left. Um, and so you're having an atrophying party. Um, and I think that's going to hurt it because as going back to my earlier point that the Labour Party by their own um, recognition needs a Blair era result for a majority of uh, a Blair era kind of vote share percentage for a majority of one. If you lose that one <laughs> or if you don't yeah. quite even meet the one, um, you know, there's, there's a huge there's a huge amount of risk that, um, that they're, they're risk incurring here by being too like literally conservative um i think yes i mean i think that labor really to my mind and, and the big sign that labor is in trouble was again the local election results mm. um earlier this year because i made the point before but um in 1996, the local election results showed Labour with, I think it was about a 14-point lead. Um, the following year, in 1997, they went on with their landslide win of about 13 points. So I suspect, and I said this about my, my comments with the Uxbridge vote, I think um, it's quite likely that the local election results this year will be in the same ballpark as the general election results next year. And obviously, unless something big changes, um, but it is possible that Rishi Sunak could turn it back. I think part of the Tories' problem is Rishi Sunak, not necessarily just because of him, but because they got rid of Boris Johnson, who was a relative electoral asset for them. Um, and so, yeah, but it, it's I don't think it looks that good for Labour, to be honest with you. No. I mean, going back, I mean, as you mentioned, those at local elections in the running to the 1997 general election, I mean, I was actually campaigning in those elections and uh, indeed stood. And I remember Labour were winning councils, winning every single seat. As, you know, when they're all out elections, Labour were winning every single seat. I mean, in Derby, we nearly won every single. We had all that. We don't normally have all that elections in the city where I live. Uh, but that year we did because there'd been some boundaries. Oh, no, it was because they'd be, be, become a unitary authority. I think if I wasn't boundary, it's because it become a unitary council. And uh, uh, of, of 44 seats, Labour won uh, 39, I think it was. But there were other authorities where every single seat was falling to the Labour Party. What are the local... Um, I mean, we talked about the outcome of the, you know, the, the white, you know, the England-wide local elections uh, in, in May. But what's the trend in the council by-elections going for? Because I mean, they're virtually every week, aren't they? I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to study those, either of you. What, what, what's, that, what's that showing us? What, what, I mean, are Labour doing better in that, worse in that, or about the same? Well, you have the Newham result recently with uh, Mehmoud Mirza won. Um, uh, my, but overall, I think, yes, there's been, there's been some successes for independence. There's been some, some successes for Labour, um, Tories have done generally quite badly, but actually some there are places where they've held on as well. Um, I, James will um, have his own views on this, but my view is that what we're seeing is kind of a patchwork. So mm. my prediction, as it were, is a mugs game. I don't know why I'm making a prediction, but I will make a prediction. That <laughs> um, is that come the general election, we are going to see some pretty patchy results. And I think that Labour will recover ground in the so-called red wall, which you know is an awful term, but without another term, I'll use it. Um, I think the Liberal Democrats will do very well at the Tories' expense in the southwest, and I think the Tories are going to lose quite a lot. Um, that doesn't, in my view, 
to me, it doesn't look like Labour's going to gain enough to form a majority. And the, I can see a pathway for the Tories just to kind of squeak by and be the largest party or maybe a tiny majority. But, you know, it will be patchy across the country, I think. That's that's my take anyway. What do you, what, what, I mean, have you been looking at the local election by-elections and are they showing a similar picture, James, or not? Yeah, well, I'm chair of the Independent Councillors Association and the independents uh, across the country, now I appreciate independents come from sort of a variety of... Oh, yeah, left to, uh, left to right, it's a whole spectrum, spectrum, I would imagine, yeah. Um, but independents and Greens, frankly, are the people, certainly since May, um, that have been the uh, victors of uh, more by-elections, I think, than at any point. Uh, in this sort of time in the electoral cycle. I mean, the elections in May saw the Tories take a real drubbing. You know, they lost more than half of the councils they controlled. They were down uh, over a thousand seats. But despite that, Labour only gained uh, just over 500, which, which leaves over 500 seats that went to uh, smaller parties, be them uh, the Liberal Democrats who, who gained... Uh, I believe around sort of three to four hundred, uh, the Greens up almost two fifty, and indeed uh, Independents up a, a large number as well. A good number of whom I might add uh, were left wing uh, Independents. Yes, um, yes know, we saw course. in Portsmouth, we saw uh, in Liverpool. Uh, I was up in Garston helping uh, Sam and Lucy on polling day in Liverpool, um, and elsewhere in the country as well. I think the real challenge that the left have when it comes to local elections uh, is building local infrastructure. And that's something that the Green Party in recent years has been able to sort of emulate from the Liberal Democrats. Because actually, mm. you know, once you've got some sort of infrastructure in place, as they do, for example, in Liverpool, um, I believe in the good old saying of nothing creates success like success. Uh, once you've proven you can win, or, or at the very least make a dent, uh, then you'll be amazed the number of people that will come out of the woodwork. And, and in time, as the uh, people on the left move past Labour, now under Starmer, they're, they're lurching away from their traditional uh, values. I think that infrastructure will come with time. Mm. Um, and local elections, uh, I think, somewhat unlike parliamentary elections. Uh, people are willing uh, to be more flexible with who they uh, vote for yeah. um, and to an extent, for want of a better phrase, almost take a punt on something a little bit different to see what it's like at a local level. Uh, and if they like it, who knows, they might vote for it on a parliamentary level. Well, we've seen this before. I mean, not just at local level. I mean, we've seen it in the European elections when the UK was a member of the European Union. I think the Greens didn't. They actually win the election one, one, one time. Um, but people then return to their traditional voting habits when the general election comes. I wonder whether you think, either of you, that Scotland might be Labour's salvation because the SNP have had their share of uh, woes. I, I don't know whether that's translating into votes in the ballot box for other parties. I mean, are Labour likely to be the benefactor, the beneficiary of of the difficulties, do you think, that the SNP are experiencing, James? I think it's more likely than not, to be honest, Chris. I mean, it's always uh, rather puzzled me that the people 
who would be, in my humble opinion, uh, worst affected uh, financially by Scottish independence are often the people who most fanatically support Scottish independence. And I think part of that is that they're typically people who feel forgotten or left behind and, and they learn and they really yearn for, um, you know, something different um, because they, they aren't getting anything from the current system, which I think, you know, attracted a large number of, uh, frankly, working class people and poorer people to the SNP in stark contrast with the Conservatives in Westminster. But after numerous SNP scandals and the um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon scandal, I think, being the final straw, I think Labour are seeing uh, a resurgence in Scotland, um, but more because, um, you know, that these are the voters, in theory, uh, natural home. And Anas Sarwar seems to be making somewhat more of an impact up there than Keir Starmer. We can see his net approval ratings uh, are almost always higher in Scotland than those of Keir Starmer. And of course, Scottish Labour has uh, a somewhat uh, distinct identity from the rest of the party. So while Scotland might be its salvation, um, just to throw one more issue and hazard in the mix for Keir Starmer, I think it would be remiss not to mention the English uh, and indeed uh, Welsh and, and what have you boundary review. Um, that will take effect for the next general election, which in classic gerrymandering style will only benefit the incumbents. Mm -hmm. What about you, Phil? What's your thoughts, just perhaps in conclusion, uh, in relation to the Scottish situation? I mean, might that, uh, I mean, have you sort of factored that into your prediction or, or, or do you think that might sort of slightly not your prediction of guilt if no. indeed Labour are, are significant beneficiaries of uh, the implosion if it happens? of the SNP's folks. Obviously, the SNP might recover as well, just like Rishi Sunak might. But. I Personally, I think it's a bit of a wild card. I don't have a, a strong view on it, to be honest with you, except that I think Labour would have to do remarkably well in Scotland to... Bear in mind, they need something like um, 120 or more MPs in order to form a majority of one. Extra uh, MPs, so that additional um, MPs, isn't it? They need 120 more MPs, is what you mean. Now. Yes, yes, sorry, yes. yes, yes. In addition to what they've got now, which means they need to win back um, every single seat in the so-called red wall and almost double that as well. Mm. So what they what they need to do, and this again, I've said it before, but this this is Keir Starmer isn't just an ideologue; he is the right wing ideologue. But he's also got a strategy because he realises that he needs to win over conservative voters. Mm. I mean, I don't think he's going to do that. But so, but anyway, the, the situation in Scotland, um, I mean, it could help him if it swings that way. But if you also bear in mind that previously when the um, SNP has, like in 2017, when the SNP hasn't done that well, um, the conservatives have also benefited. So... Uh, um, I mean, I'm not um, particularly informed about the situation in Scotland, but there is also a lot of disenchantment still, I should imagine, with Scottish Labour, which is one of the reasons mm -hmm. why the SNP did so well anyway. Um, so I think I would be personally very surprised if it gave Starmer the, the numbers he needs. Um, mm -hmm. and, and like James said, there's the uh, boundary review that's going to be implemented and that's going to adversely affect Labour's chances, which... They can't afford, given the numbers that we're seeing. 
Well, look, I said in conclusion, I mean, you just prompted another thought, and I'd be interested in both of your uh, views on this. I mean, you know, what you talked about there, Phil, in terms of, uh, you know, pursuing, uh, Kirst Armour pursuing Tories to vote Labour. That's been the traditional new Labour approach, really, since Blair. I mean, my view was always uh, that we should be in seeking to inspire people who don't vote. They're the biggest cohort in every election. Uh, I mean, I've no objections, I used to say, to Tories having a Damascene conversion, but they need to have a Damascene conversion to a socialist programme, not actually for us to kind of trim, when I say us, I'm no longer part of the Labour Party, but you know what I mean, the Labour Party is to sort of trim its position to, to uh, you know, basically become a Tory party. Um, do you think either of you, both of you, sorry, and perhaps starting with you, James, that there is any prospect for emerging parties, maybe some that's been around a bit longer, you know, progressive on the left, maybe so, actually some of those on the right as well, for that matter, to, rather than going after the, I mean, again, you know, no problem going after people who regularly vote anyway, but a lot of those have kind of got settled views and particular parties, they tend to always vote for. Do you think that there is any scope for some of the uh, smaller parties at the moment, smaller parties, to pursue those non-voters. I mean, some of the cynical attitude when I used to talk about the Labour Party doing that was that we shouldn't bother with non-voters because the thing about non-voters is they don't vote, so don't bother wasting your time with them. And that's a cynical view, which I think is taken by probably all the political parties, but they are the biggest cohort. Do you think there's any scope for the smaller parties, the left-wing parties, to pursue those non-voters, James? Or am I just sort of, uh, you know, a dreamer? Um, no, I think there's some merit in the idea. I think it would take uh, a lot of encouragement to get some of those people to vote. But I think we saw just as but one example in the EU referendum that when actually the electorate are particularly galvanised about an issue, be it one way or the other, that they will turn out and vote. And I think a lot of non-voters just don't feel inspired uh, mm. by any of the offerings, frankly, of, of any party. Um, which is a big reason why they don't vote. But uh, another thing that I think uh, is definitely worth pursuing are not only people that don't vote, but people who aren't registered to vote, who uh, are eligible. Something I always do in uh, my award about once a year is knock the doors of people who aren't registered to vote and introduce myself, say who I am, um, ask them if they've registered and nine times out of ten they say no or, or not interested or, or whatever um, but once you actually explain who you are that you know you're not from any of the big parties um, and explain that at least in your view you're different uh, and yeah. try and convince them that you're a little bit different actually you'd be surprised the number that are receptive and actually in turn do mm -hmm. register to vote um, and we've seen here in Kingston over a period of four years that actually uh, more successfully than non-voters, we've actually been able to convince non-registered people to vote in elections, um, which, you know, I think in my case, dare I say, made the difference. I was elected with a majority of just eight, um, which oh. my, my ward colleague a few months later uh, managed to, uh, I, I don't even know what the apple would be, but got a 24 times uh, bigger majority than me. So, oh, yeah. You know, when people uh, elect, uh, you know, genuine uh, politicians of, of integrity, um, typically they like what they see. 
um, the challenge is actually getting them. And, and if you can inspire people to register, um, I think that they will actually uh, take it up. Phil, then in uh, final word, um, do you think there's any merit in it? And, and, and perhaps as well, if you, if, if you think there is, what of the political parties, this is a difficult question to end on, what have they got these smaller political parties? What have we got to do to actually you know, make that happen? Uh, you know, to get them to, to come in. And obviously the point that James made about chasing the, the people that are not registered, but what, what do they need to do to build infrastructure in, on, on the ground um, with people's trust? <laughs> it's a really big question to end with. So, uh, yeah, bear with me. Um, uh, again, I agree with James. I think there is room. I think uh, I'm going to slightly disagree with James um, from earlier when he was talking about Tusk and the threshold for um getting like a big parliamentary broadcast i don't personally think that that's as important as really um tight specific on the ground targeting which actually james is very good at um in terms of you identify where people are receptive to you broadly and you you go you you're, you you be on the ground in that constituency preferably with a candidate who lives there and you actually go out and talk to people about the um, the difficulties they face. Housing is a huge one in my area. Um, you, you you get their feedback, and you 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 basically work with them on those issues and try and get their voices heard. And you do that well before an election. Um, the other thing is, I mean, it, it's it's quite difficult for for to say this when you know obviously I've got my own clear kind of socialist views, but you do also have to listen to people as well and take on board what they think because you know if you can't get people behind your agenda um you're not going to be successful you're not going to get into power i'm not saying you change your views or your, your kind of your big picture principles but if people feed something back to you that you would think is a good policy but actually doesn't work for them then um then you really should listen and the point of view that i would the point that i would press on this one and again, it cuts across and cuts against some of the stuff we were talking about earlier with regards to the successive green um, candidates. And actually, it kind of moves us back to um, the Uxbridge situation, where the big issue was the um, ultra low emissions zone. Now, although people kind of like the idea in principle, when that's in, when those kinds of policies are applied in practice, they often negatively impact the least well-off people in society. For example, if you're having to pay to go about your daily business because you happen to drive the wrong sort of car, you know, that, that they are working people who are being affected by um, green policies. And so you have, and this is, a, again, it's a problem for Labour because you've got Labour councils up and down the country um, who are imposing these things on people. And from, from Birmingham, London to Birmingham to Manchester, they're wildly unpopular. Um, that is a huge opportunity for a small party in any of those areas or in, in several of those areas to actually be a socialist party that challenges the uh, incumbents, which in many cases there will be Labour, over that issue while also being socialist. And you can do that because it's a, it's a, it's a, a policy that negatively impacts against the poor and so that is that is one area that people could focus on 
even though it right. seems counterintuitive. And, and there are ways of thinking around it in terms of actual green policy, because actually they don't work. <laughs> it's the reality of it. Um, so, so that's another one. But you've, yeah, you've basically got to look at um, where people aren't being listened to, the issues that affect them. And from a socialist point of view, you know, bread and butter issues, for goodness sake, housing, um, you know, the, the, the state of people's streets, the upkeep of their neighbourhoods. This is the stuff that you, you need to be focused on and helping people with, rather than these kind of big identity politics kind of no, ideas that don't, don't resonate. Yeah, and, it's frustrating because th these are very self-same issues that I remember campaigning on, you know, many years ago, uh, you know, quite successfully, actually. And, you know, we made a, a big difference, but, but things have kind of gone backwards again. And uh, and it's sort of like, you know, refighting those those battles yeah. uh, over and over again. But I suppose like Tony Benson, there's no final victory and there's no final defeat. Each generation has to fight the same battles. But it's a shame that we have to fight. They, they'll serve same battles because, I mean, in a, in a big economy like Britain, you know, some of those things it shouldn't. This shouldn't be a problem. I mean, you know, it really shouldn't be. I mean, we can we'll go off at a tangent now, and talk about you know, the fact that we have our own sovereign currency and how that gives massive flexibility for uh, an incumbent uh, government to you know create a good society. But they choose to actually, you know, lavish those uh, resources on the the super rich and the war machine. But anyway. That's it for tonight. Thank you very much indeed, both of you. And just on that theme about the war machine, uh, there is a no to NATO rally taking place on the 6th of August at, at Downing Street. I'll be speaking there and a range of other spe uh, speakers, uh, very eminent speakers will be uh, uh, attending and speaking. And I would urge everybody, uh, if you are able to come to Downing Street on that day. This is going to be part of a worldwide uh, peace, anti-war demonstration that will be taking place in, in capitals all over the world to express their opposition to NATO and their, their, you know, their horror, really, at uh, the ongoing uh, war machine and the, the death and destruction that it inflicts on, on, on so many people around the world. And if you can be there, then please do join us on this very important day. It is the, uh, I think, the 78th anniversary of the dropping of the uh, atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima. And uh, finally, if you're not already a member of the Workers' Party, could I urge you to, to please join us? Uh, people who are watching who are supporters, members of Resist, will know that the Resist members have voted to, to join with the Workers' Party. And we've been welcomed with open arms. I recorded a conversation with George Galloway a week or so back now. George is very humble, very, very pleased to see that we are joining forces uh, uh, with the Workers' Party. The Workers' Party, it seems to me, you know, does have the infrastructure there. Um, it's not a massive party yet, but it has huge potential. We've got a great leader, probably the, the world's best orator, I think, in, in George Galloway. Um, and so there's huge potential there. And we saw what happened when the Workers' Party fielded uh, George as a candidate in the Batley, Batley and Spend by-election in 2021. And uh, uh, got a very creditable result. I mean, you know, with a fair wind, uh, you know, George would have won that uh, seat. It, it was an incredible uh, campaign, a very positive campaign. And there was really significant support. And, and just shows, really, I mean, you look at other you know, emerging parties, smaller parties, when they've stood in by-elections, none of them have achieved, I mean, you know, none of them have won, a, you get the odd occasion where an independent gets through, but that's true. But in terms of new parties coming through, they don't really, you know, make make the headway that, uh, well, that, you know, the Workers' Party did 
there. So, you know, it does have that uh, potential. Uh, membership is growing. Uh, you know, got some great people on board. And so I would urge you, if you're not already a member, to, to please uh, do join the Workers' Party and help us to build a credible alternative to the Labour Party, because as we keep saying, the Labour Party is really no different to the Tory party these days, committed to neoliberal economics, committed to the war machine, committed to all the cuts in social security, etc. that we uh, saw George, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, uh, Keir Starmer, Mr. Keir Starmer, talking about uh, last week and being reinforced then by the likes of uh, Lucy Powell and, uh, and Rachel Reeves. So, you know, there is a desperate need for an alternative. And I think on a positive note, and I've made this point before on this uh, programme, that uh, there was a poll published by The Independent uh, a few months back now, which showed that two out of three Britons would like to see a new party emerge to take on both the Tories and the Labour Party. So that does give us hope. Uh, and let's, uh, you know, try and make sure that it's the Workers' Party that, that fulfils that role. We can only do that if we've got numbers. You know, there is, there, there is strength in unity and the strength in, in those sort of numbers uh, rallying to a particular cause like that. So let me thank uh, Phil Bevan and uh, James Giles for your erudite contributions uh, this evening. Really interesting. I hope people have found it uh, an interesting discussion. Uh, it certainly looks like there's all to play for from the analysis that we've just heard from, from Phil and James. So let's get to it. Thank you for watching this evening. We'll see you next week and good night.